0: Hi, I'm David Massover. Welcome to the Driving B2B Sales Revenue Podcast, where I'll be interviewing senior sales leaders, sales experts, and sales service providers about what else, what it takes to drive B2B sales revenue. So thanks for being here. Let's get started. Hi, this is David Massover, and welcome to the Driving B2B Sales Revenue Podcast. Today, we have got a great guest. We're talking to Andrew Butt. CEO and co-founder at Enable. Andrew, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, David. It's great to be here. It's a pleasure. I really, really appreciate you making the time. Now, Andrew, you and I had a conversation before recording this episode. And when I asked you what theme or topic you wanted to address, you suggested the idea of rapid scaling, which of course is a great goal for any business. But it's one that's often associated with this kind of archetype, stereotypical and often destructive and depressing volume and velocity approach to sales that you know so many VC backed operations seem to fall into these days and i want to dig into that with you because i think it's a really interesting topic but before we do can you give us a little bit of background about enable just for context
1: absolutely yeah very happy to so enable is a collaboration platform and so obviously many of those around these days but we're very very specialized in the supply chain so we are used typically between companies and their suppliers but also it can be companies and their customers as well to collaborate on all of the trading agreements and trading programs they have which tend to be all about you know what their goals are in terms of targets and what types of products they're selling and so on and what the incentives are typically in the form of rebates linked to those targets. So we are a platform that manages all of those rebates, all those incentives and the collaboration around that in the supply chain.
0: Taking something important and complex and making it simple and clear. That sounds like a great value proposition to me. And transparent
1: so everyone is on the same page and they can all see what the plan is.
0: Thank you. Thanks for that background. So as for our core topic today, there's a lot of examples and stories pretty much everywhere you look about VC-backed companies with thinly managed sales outreach and, you know, poorly considered messaging and lots of high-powered sales technology enabling all of that stuff at scale, which isn't necessarily a great thing. It's affectionately known of course as volume and velocity and, you know, from what you've described to me, enable really doesn't work that way. But why do you think that so many do? Well, I think
1: it's really to do with maturity. So we spent quite a lot of time before becoming venture backed, really understanding the problem deeply and getting some very proven kind of fit with a lot of customers and kind of really proving that out and demonstrating how well it worked and also how it could be profitable before we started going quite fast. And to answer your question, I think some companies kind of don't do that and they start kind of going into that high velocity mode too early. Where they don't understand the problem enough, where the product isn't proven or maybe even barely even exists. So, those are probably some of the key reasons.
0: You talked to me about how before you got your first round of venture capital, it's a period you described as bootstrapping. You described the situation as being tight and hand to mouth. And because of that, you had to be really deliberate about getting high quality opportunities into your pipeline and, and then getting them closed. Many in sales focus on high activity. When the need for generating revenue is pressing, where do you think sellers and companies should be focusing instead when they're trying to increase revenue?
1: Sure. I think there's nothing wrong with high activity. And, you know, I'm a great believer that having a deep product, which is solving a very specific problem, is the way to go rather than trying to be all things to all people. And that does then require pretty high kind of velocity and you know pipeline velocity because if you only talk to five people the chances are that none of them will there'll be a strong fit and you can then fall into a different trap where you're kind of trying to push your products it's like a square peg and a round hole because you're just not talking to enough people so i do think there's a need to go you know broad and talk to a lot of people and have a lot of velocity but then to be very strict on qualification and this is a mutual and this is to not waste your own time, but more important, in a way, to not waste the prospects' time. And so, high activity is fine as long as you kind of strictly qualify.
0: It's kind of like that old expression, you know, you can climb really high on the ladder, but you have to make sure it's leaning against the right wall. Yeah, ex- ex-
1: exactly, exactly. And I think long-term success, which really means customer success and customers getting value, is about having a very tight fit. So, speaking to Let's make the numbers up. Speaking to a thousand prospects and finding the ten where there's an amazing fit is much better than speaking to fifty prospects and then just attempting to make it work for ten of those fifty.
0: You're located right in the heart of Silicon Valley. How do you characterize the balance between a company who who wants to do that kind of work, who wants to take their time and figure things out, figure out the problem solution fit, figure out the right qualification, figure out the right ICP? after they've taken some venture money and have a lot of pressure for activity. Do you see this as a, as a tension point for a lot of companies? I think it is a tension point.
1: And you know, one thing I was thinking about the other day is, at the end of the day, companies need to ship product, don't they? And need to win customers in order to learn and improve and iterate. And so, the tension is that on one extreme, what you started saying, David, of being way too early and, and kind of going fast and just not having great kind of fit then having very kind of upset customers that churn and this type of thing. But then on the other extreme, if we're just too slow and uh, too sort of, you know, take too long to get it right, then we're not going to get out to enough companies and we're not going to get that feedback loop. and We're not going to learn and we're not going to be able to improve. So I think there, there, there is a tension, but I think that can be a very healthy tension
0: it sounds like at the end of the day, the right answer is, you have to go quickly. You have to have a lot of activity. But you know, you have to get some of the core questions answered early as best you can. Understand what's not working quickly. Adjust rapidly. There, there's just yeah. not a whole lot of time for taking time getting up to speed.
1: That's right. Yeah, exactly. So I think certainly for me, having that core proposition which does stand up, which does work well. You know, having a number of customers who are very satisfied and are getting real value from the product before kind of going fast is important. And I've learned things like uh, you know, be patient for profitability. Sorry, got that wrong. Be impatient for profitability, but patient for growth initially. Okay, mm-hmm. so so don't try and grow too fast initially, but but be kind of really make sure you've got a model here which can profit the customer and can be profitable for the company in the in the long run but then once you've got that then those things reverse don't they and you then if you want to be a leader a market leader and maybe you know not everyone does so to your point you have to go fast i think you have to go fast if you want to be a leader in the market but if you don't if you if you're happy and content being a small company then you don't have to go fast but if you do want to be a leader then once you've got that kind of fit then you need to be Impatient for growth and you need to be patient for profitability. That's a longer term
0: outcome. So you need to go fast. You just have to make sure you're pointed in the right direction first.
1: Yeah. And I I talk a lot about rockets. And, uh, you know, I really like reading about what Jason Lemkin writes on uh, SASTA. And, you know, his logo, in fact, is a rocket because a a SAS company and any fast growing company has to reach an escape velocity in order to to kind of break out of all the gravitational pull of everything that's trying to stop you being successful. So my experience again is to be a market leader you have to go fast. You can't become a market leader slowly.
0: And with that analogy, of course there's a lot of resistance to get off the ground. There's a lot of yeah. resistance to break through the atmosphere. That doesn't yeah. mean you're going to go go slow afterwards, but that's really the 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 time where there's an important struggle that that that's make or break.
1: Absolutely. That's right. And again so my bootstrapping background that you referred to was highly capital efficient. You know, we couldn't spend we could only spend the money that we were generating as income from our customers on developing our business. So that was a huge kind of discipline and a huge constraint. But then in order to reach that escape velocity, then we have to burn, you know, we have to burn fuel. And that, that was quite a big mental shift. But it just is, is necessary. There's very, very few cases in the world where a company can achieve that escape velocity without, without burning lots of fuel.
0: You have been very involved. In the sales organization. You're the CEO, you're the co-founder. And uh, until recently, I know from our previous conversation, you had been very involved in the sales organization. And you told me about something pretty counterintuitive that you do with quota, which is a pretty hot topic in sales. And that's that you set the bar low enough that it's compelling, but such that most everybody who's going after it can smash it. Very much the opposite of what most do. What led you to that approach to quota, and, and how has that impacted sales at enable
1: so I think partly it's the so the, the new kind of revenue leader that that we hired at the beginning of the quarter and kind of some of his philosophy in setting us up for the new financial year which we, we just started so I, I certainly can 't take all the credit for making that change, but I guess the reason why I, I quickly came around to it is because we want the majority of our salespeople, ideally all of them, but at least the majority of them, to be highly successful and to be very positive and to be spreading the word within the company and outside the company to their friends and peers that that most people are successful at enable. And so by setting the quota somewhere where it's definitely attainable, then you simply have more more salespeople smashing it. Uh, And again, it also links back to the availability of capital these days that if a company is bootstrapping then you have to get a big multiple don't you of a salesperson's OTE on on closed revenue because you, you just you know you, you have to use that to kind of pay payroll but if you can raise capital and the you know the economics work then you just don't need to you know you can take a longer term approach and if that, that multiple is smaller in the early years while you're launching your rocket and you know building market share then that's that's a completely sensible way to do it
0: so these kind of very solid, smart, effective sales strategies like letting your rep succeed with quota and, and taking care to execute a proper and effective consultative approach on a well-defined target with, a, with a, a compelling value proposition. Sadly, from what I see in the market, these are not typical in enough VC-backed companies. How is it that you're able to defend the time and energy it takes to to focus on these practices that are so outside the norm in so many BC backed companies
1: as i say we're a little bit unusual because we we started you know we didn't start in silicon valley and actually the majority of our people are not here you know right now the majority are in the uk i'm very pleased and proud that we've opened up a hub in toronto this year and we've gone from I think we've hired 37 people so far this year in 2021 and we've gone from 0 to about 25 in Toronto in that time but the point is we started outside of silicon valley and again it was this you know we could only we could only spend what we had earned from customers and so that discipline we've we've really carried forward into the Kind of venture back to chapter. And I guess that's the main difference that uh, perhaps if we had started here and we'd kind of raised a sort of pre seed round and, you know, we'd been kind of burning before we had any revenue, may- maybe we wouldn't have that discipline.
0: So you had the luxury of being able to start the way you wanted to start, get your foundation solidified, and that gave you some armor. To, quite, uh, quite funny, uh, isn't it?
1: You say that it's like the luxury of, of uh, have it being massively constrained and the luxury of being hand to mouth. But yes, you're right. It does, it has produced, I think, a high quality output.
0: I think it's actually a pretty accurate term because I was involved in, in my first startup in 1999. And, and one of the first lessons that I learned from the people around me who were a lot more experienced in, in the startup world than I was was problems also scale. Sure. Problems also scale. And, and if you have the luxury, of being able to solidify what it is that you're trying to do before you attempt to scale, among yes. other ways, by inserting capital, I mm. would consider that a luxury that a lot of people don't take a lot of companies don't take advantage of, and they seem to suffer for it,
1: sure. yeah, no, I, I think that's right. And uh, you know obviously, you and I are both huge advocates for the importance of sales in business and you know in life. But sales does create everything else, doesn't it? So for me, if we, the faster we grow and the more we sell, then sure, the more problems we have. But then that kind of really is the catalyst for, for resolving problems and scaling up and fixing bottlenecks. Because if we just sit here talking about how to scale the organization and how to deliver amazing service, but we don't have any customers, then it's just all academic, isn't it? So I do think this is the catalyst for building a high quality company.
0: Well, well, luckily, in sales is measurable. So so it's a catalyst that you can actually get some feedback from and find out if it's working or not. Yes, exactly. So you you mentioned that you recently hired someone to lead the sales organization at Enable. Congratulations. That's fantastic. I'm sure that's really good for you, especially if it's the right person and it sounds like it is. But until then, you were leading the sales function personally. Where in your past did you begin to embrace the kind of sales leadership philosophy that you've been talking about today?
1: Yeah, sure. So one thing I, I must say is uh, I did have a, a, a fantastic colleague who uh, I initially met as an advisor, and then he actually stepped in as, as interim CRO for the last twelve months. So I definitely was not kind of running things single handedly. I was the only person in the US twelve months ago, and and we've kind of hired a US team. So John and I kind of ran that kind of b- between us. But um, yeah, so I just wanted to to say that. But I think I've always been passionate about about communicating and people and. I kind of get very tuned in and interested in things that I'm interested in, and then probably I'm not very good at <laughs> anything else. But meeting people from an early age and really talking to them about my interests and convincing them of kind of uh, those interests and sell- effectively selling to them—that just was something I was interested in from an early age, combined with my passion for computing. So I just naturally was kind of persuading and converting and preaching to people about about computing and technology and software from an early age so that's really where it came from and where my real interest lies i think in terms of leadership skills that's probably i'm a bit more a bit more wally when it comes to that i've certainly enjoyed learning different sales methodologies so for example i spent a lot of time studying sandler and i was in mm-hmm. sandler's president club for quite a while and so i've definitely studied and absorbed different methodologies but i've probably got more kind of interest in just sales and being a salesperson than necessarily a sales manager or a sales leader can claim to be you know, the I best that, at that.
0: I think that's a really refreshing answer because I think a lot of times when you ask a question like that, you 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 expect to hear things about process and technology and technique and tactics and cadences and you know, all of that stuff's really important. But I, I really like how you just focus right in on what should be the core. It's about communicating, it's about people, it's about solving problems. It's... Uh, I'm going to say communicating again, because you know whether it's sales or leadership, you really can't do that enough. And yeah. obviously, you need to have a systematic way of doing that. Yeah. But that's what it comes down to.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think um, we all know the best salespeople are not, are not salespeople, are they? They are domain experts that, that are passionate about what they do. And people like them because they, they just are so knowledgeable about their subject area. And they can genuinely help. All the best salespeople I know wouldn't really call themselves salespeople. But I think you're absolutely right. It is about being that trusted advisor and, and simply having that deep domain knowledge that you can pass on to customers and help them to make good decisions.
0: Yeah. Being a trusted advisor isn't a tactic or a technique. It's no. not something you can learn from a 10-point list. It's about really understanding the problems that you solve and helping people solve them. And along the way, there's some, some monetary exchange as a result of that. Yeah, exactly.
1: Exactly so I think um, our sales team was very small until quite recently, and maybe my kind of enthusiasm for the subject and and uh, the quality of the product that our team built and everything else meant that I could kind of run that team and and be quite successful. but I would say my skill and my interest is not sort of running a very large team at scale with processes and that's not really you know I'm much more of a kind of outward facing person that I'm talking to the market talking to customers talking speaking at events talking to investors and actually managing a team you know and using all the correct me- methodologies I'm just so pleased that we I've got someone who who who's a kind of
0: experienced professional at doing that right Keep, keeps the side rails up <laughs> I love it so you know we we started this conversation with the idea that that a lot of venture backed companies jump into a, a volume and velocity approach too quickly. They, they maybe haven't thought through product solution fit, ICP, other things, messaging. And it sounds like what you're saying is that, that whether it's a function of venture capital or, or for a non-venture-packed company, just time, energy, and focus, one of the things that's really helped and to grow is taking the time to get that right before putting your, your foot on the gas pedal. Is that a fair way to sum that up?
1: I think it's fair. And it's clearly not kind of a, a sort of black and white or a binary thing. It is it is definitely shades of gray. And there is still a lot to be said for speed because I think so many people are just, you know, they've got an amazing, they have got an amazing product and they have got very happy customers, but they're still quite cautious in, in how fast they want to go. And there's such a big risk of being overtaken. And also from an innovation point of view, the faster you can go and the more customers you can beat and the more feedback you can get. And and actually the more problems and challenges you get, the the faster you can kind of iterate and fix things. So I do think it's a a constant balancing act and almost on a quarter by quarter basis, because we were saying when we, David, that obviously we're all very focused on the quarter. And I would say I have kind of had like a very good quarter, then another very good quarter, and then gone on the gas pedal even more. Okay. And then maybe we might have a, a, a softer quarter or two and then say, well, actually, we, we just need to hold back a bit here. you know. And, and I think it is, it is constant adjustment that, uh, you know, again, I'm an aviator and they say when a, when a plane is flying across the Atlantic, it's off course most of the time. It's just constantly course correcting. So I think that's the same here.
0: So it sounds like uh, taking your time makes sense as long as you do it quickly.
1: <laughs> I think again, that, that initial foundation at least have something I mean, some of the advice is kind of get say 10 unaffiliated customers, for example, on a genuine product, a genuine, uh, no, no, not, not a custom solution, but a genuine product. Get 10 unaffiliated customers, prove it with that. And then to get from say 10 to 100, then get, you know, get go faster. And along the way, maybe you go from say 10 to 30 or 40. And then you need to kind of just ease back a bit and fix, fix a few things maybe before getting back on the gas pedal again.
0: Fantastic advice. I really appreciate you sharing all this with us, Andrew. It's It's been a, a fast ride for you guys. And it sounds like it's come on the heels of, of a lot of hard work, but a lot of thoughtful consideration. I, I wanted to ask you one more question before we go here. You guys have been in hyper growth mode. There's been a lot of success, but just specifically on the sales side of things, what kind of things are you struggling with right now as you continue to push for this kind of growth and to sustain this kind of growth that you've been that you've been having?
1: I think the thing which is always on my mind is about how kind of narrow the focus should be and so do we kind of keep laser focused on the current kind of sales motion and you know the current functionality and the current market and the current you know everything we're doing now and purely kind of scale that and you know we're at more than 100% year over year growth and we've been sustaining that for multiple years so that that's pretty good but then sometimes talk to people and they say well potentially, you can go a lot faster than that. And rather than just being sort of potentially blinkered, you know, think about about kind of... There's uh, this, this kind of a lot beyond what we're doing in terms of things like product-led growth and kind of getting into, into a, a kind of broader market. So that, for me, is the constant dilemma of um, balancing just, just executing on the current model versus kind of embracing something broader. And I don't know if I'd call that it's not like a major struggle, but it, it definitely is is something which
0: kind of keeps me keeps me awake at night. It's one of these like evil temptations, isn't it? Because it's very tempting to want to expand, but it's also a little bit dangerous. Yeah,
1: it is. I mean one thing I'd like to just quickly add is we're talking about velocity and I said earlier, having that pipeline velocity and getting a lot more in, but then qualifying, you know, most of it out to to be left with the best fit kind of customers where there's the best mutual fit i think that's also the same with team and keeping the bar high in the team so i think when when companies go very slowly and i did this earlier in my career you can have a handful of people who kind of are are fine it's like the good to great they're good and they kind of hang around for years and years and Whereas when you've got a higher velocity, you're, we're, you know, we're finding we're hiring people all the time and we're finding what great actually looks like. So as well as that kind of pipeline velocity and a pipeline of prospects and customers, we've got that pipeline of talent and the velocity of that as well. So that's just another thing that was kind of occurring to me as we were speaking.
0: Well, Much easier to go faster when you've got good people on the team. Andrew, this has been a fantastic episode. Thank you for sharing your experiences and, and your insights with us. If people want to learn more about you or reach out to connect with you, where's the best place to do that?
1: Sure. I think LinkedIn is the best place. I do respond to all messages on LinkedIn. So uh, if you go to enable.com, really easy website, and just click on LinkedIn, it'll take you to the company profile and to my profile.
0: Wonderful. We'll, we'll put that into the episode notes. Thanks again for sharing your time with us and, uh, and good luck with the continued success. Thank you, David. It's been a pleasure. You've been listening to the Driving B2B Sales Revenue Podcast with your host, me, David Massover. If you'd like to learn more about how I can help you and your sales organization accelerate growth, or if you'd like to be a guest on the show, reach out to me at davidmassover.com or find me on LinkedIn. Please rate and subscribe to the podcast to be the first to know about new episodes. And thanks for listening. Now, Let's go drive some B2B sales revenue.